Hello and welcome to Embassy City Church Podcast. This is a place where all people can experience the love of God through the Word of God. Our prayer is that you will be inspired and transformed. Thank you for joining us today. I want to teach today and preach a little to all of us who have come to celebrate Easter. We have come to celebrate resurrection power. I want to begin today right in the Word. Let's go to the Word. Do you have your Bibles? If not, it's okay. Nobody's judging you. If you got an iPhone, if you got an iPad, if not, it's going to be up on the screens. Um, but I want you to prepare to hear from God this morning. It is Easter Sunday. I have to talk about the resurrection, but I want to begin in the book of Isaiah. I know what you're thinking. You're like, this girl's an amateur because even I know the resurrection happens in the New Testament. What is she doing in the book of Isaiah? Well, let me explain. Um, the book of Isaiah is a book what, that we call a prophet. It's one of the prophets. And that means this, that God, by his spirit, allowed these uh, men in the Old Testament to speak prophetically about what it would look like when Jesus did come to the earth. So Jesus always was, in the beginning was God, and the word was with God, right? He always was, but then he came down and got dressed in skin at a certain point. But before he got dressed in skin, he was up in heaven. The prophets got to prophetically speak about what it would look like when he did come to earth. And that's what's happening in this verse. If you have been in church a long time, you've probably heard this verse. I've heard it my whole life, but it never meant so much to me until a few years ago when I started to dig a little deeper. Isaiah Chapter 1, verse 18 says this. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Says the Lord, right? Jesus is where? In heaven, but he's speaking. Why? How? It's prophetic, okay? So, come let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Come, let us reason. I read that and I became a little perplexed because here's the thing about me is I love words. Okay, before um, anyone made me preach, I was a writer and I was an artist. I wrote songs. I did spoken word. I did all these things. I love words. I really love words. I love words enough that I know what the word reason means. The word reason, come let us reason together in the form of a verb, means this. It means to think, understand, and form judgments by a process of logic. It means to logically approach a situation and determine what you think and believe about it. It is all about, reasoning is all about using your intellect and your logic. That is perplexing to me because he says, come let us reason, come let us form a judgment by a process of logic. But then he proceeds to say the most unreasonable, illogical thing I can actually imagine. Has anybody in here ever done laundry? You can lie if not. I mean, everybody should raise that. Anybody done laundry? Okay, so when you do laundry, um, if I were to put a white garment in with a red garment, there's a good chance that white garment is not going to be white anymore. If I accidentally do that, that white garment 
might turn pink, it might get closer to red. It's reasonable for me to think that if I wash something white and red together, that the white garment would turn red. But it is unreasonable for me to think that I could ever throw that red and white garment in the laundry together and that the red garment would come out white. You mean to tell me the most irrational, unreasonable thing. Come let us reason together that though your sins are as red as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. That is not reasonable. In fact, what's even more unreasonable is how the scriptures declare they'll do it because in Revelation uh, it's chapter one, it says, he has loved us and washed us with his blood. Did you mean he washed the blood with detergent. No, it means I wash their sins with my blood. That is not reasonable. That you could wash something with blood and it comes out white. You mean to tell me that the very thing that in the natural stains is the same th thing in the spirit that removes every stain? That is unreasonable. Come let us reason. And then he says the most unreasonable thing. And I got to thinking about that. A reality is the whole story that we have come here today to celebrate and to throw a party over is actually the most unreasonable story ever told. I mean, come on. This Jesus was born of a virgin. That's not reasonable or logical. He was raised as a carpenter and for 30 years he lived in obscurity and nobody never knew he was the savior of the world. He just chilled and he made tables and he built things with his hands. But then in the final three years of his life, in just three years, he did every act of ministry, every healing sign wonder deliverance ever recorded he did in three years and that's not all because the book of John ends with one verse and he says many other things did Jesus in the presence of his disciples but if we were to write them all the whole world could not contain the books he did that much in three years that's unreasonable it's unreasonable that we believed that he died at only 33 but managed to fulfill 300 old testament prophecies specifically that he lived a sinless life but died a sinner's death it is irrational it is unreasonable to believe that he laid in a tomb three days bodies stinking people crying mama grieving and yet three days later a stone that took many many men to roll in front of a grave suddenly Jesus gets up early the third day and he just pushes this boulder off and brushes his shoulder off that is unreasonable to think and that to think that he not only got up but that he's still up because he stayed up and he's interceding the whole entire story that we've come to celebrate is unreasonable come let us reason together the title of my message today is Unreasonable Grace. In fact, the only way that you could ever believe such an illogical story is if God himself reached down from heaven and with his very own hand touched your heart and made it soft enough to absorb because Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the preaching of this cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who have believed. There's no logic to this story, y'all. 
You could talk back to me if you want. You don't have to. There's no logic to this story. And that will hinder you from believing only if you want a God that is small enough to wrap your mind around. But I don't know about you. I need a God that is bigger than the thoughts that I think. I need a God big enough to pick me up, clean me up, hold me up, hold me down. I need a God that is bigger than I can grasp. The gospel is an unreasonable story of grace. One of Jesus' last encounters, one of the last words he utters. You know when a man is going to die and he knows he's going to die? You better pay very close attention to all of the last things that he says. Well, on the cross, Jesus, knowing he's going to die, some of the last words he speaks have become the most powerful to me as the Holy Spirit has unveiled them. As he is laying there, excuse me, as he is hanging there, he has one encounter, one sentence he utters that has shaken me to my core. I want us to read it today in the book of Luke chapter 23. We're going to begin in verse 32. It's going to be on the screens for you. And Jesus is on the cross. That's what's happening. And it says this. Luke says that two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. And when they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. The crowd watched and the leader scoffed. <laughs> he saved others. They said, let him save himself if he really is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine and they called out to him, hey, if you really are the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fastened above him with these words, this is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. So <laughs> you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it. Save yourself and us too while you're at it. I'm like, really? You're dying? You have time to just kind of make fun of somebody? That's weird. It's like, prove it. And it says this, but the other criminal protested, don't you fear God? Even when you have been sentenced to die, we deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, my word is my bond. I'm telling you, today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, I don't know about you, but I find this conversation to be awkward. Three guys are dying, and two guys are having a conversation over his body. You're all naked, dying. This is weird to me. But it's happening. All the Gospels tell us it's happening. In fact, in fact the other Gospels tell us that, that the one thief actually started out also scoffing Jesus. And at some point, something happened. And, he's, and he turns to correcting the other guy. So they're having a conversation over Jesus' bloody, beaten, broken body while they're all dying, having this dialogue. Most scholars will tell you this. Jesus' hands were nailed. It specifies that. But that was not the regular during a crucifixion. Most scholars will tell you 
that Jesus' hands were nailed to fulfill the prophetic scriptures, but the thieves' hands would have been tied. They're all dying. There's a slight difference in the manner, the same way that Jesus, his legs are not broken like theirs to fulfill the scripture, but his side is pierced so that water would flow. There's, there's something different. He's different. He's, he's doing something very similar to them, but he's different. He's not the same. His hands are nailed. Their hands are tied. All three of them are convicted, hanging, sentenced to die, and already halfway dead read this story and I thought, you know what? Nothing in all of earth, in all my language could really articulate the story of the gospel quite like this moment. Nothing tells the story of salvation like this guy. This thief on the cross has literally wasted his entire life. It's over. He is counting the breaths. <sighs> How many more breaths do I have until I die. He has no time left, which means this. He has no moments left to give God. He doesn't have time or opportunity to go to church. He can't make a Sunday service, a Wednesday night Bible study, a new believers course. He got no time to ever come to church. There is no chance for him to give in an offering or a tithe. He has no opportunity to do good works or apologize and make restitution for the people that he has harmed and hurt on the way. He has no time to even be baptized. He's got no time for communion. Communion ain't even started yet. Go to a discipleship class. No time for that. I don't know how to learn to pray. I don't have time to get filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't have time to get a church suit or any church clothes. I can't listen to one sermon, one podcast, one altar call. I've got no chance to get myself together because my hands are tied literally to a cross. Can I tell you today that the story of the gospel is this, that when it comes to the issue of your sin, and the way it's marked your life with shame and pain when it comes to trying to fill the hunger and thirst that's inside of you, when it comes to trying to fix what's been torn apart in your life, your hands are just as tied as the thief on the cross. It's the perfect picture. A guy who is without the ability to do a single thing, hands tied, he can't get himself together. In fact, he's He's, he's hanging there covered in his own blood. And he's naked. He, he doesn't have time to wash his own blood or ability to wash his own blood. His hands are tied. He cannot clothe himself or hide who he really is. He is fully exposed before the eyes of God himself. He is there with no hope. He's got nothing. He's just naked. He is guilty and I mean he is guilty like there's no other evidence this was done like on Facebook live there's no question about whether or not he's guilty he's guilty he's messy he is powerless and he is out of time and all that's left is hope that there might be an unreasonable offer see the only hope for a man whose hands are tied is unreasonable grace Religion is reasonable, in case you're wondering. Religion is reasonable. It, it makes sense kind of a little bit, okay? You're God, but I have the ability, if, if I make up for what I've done, if I, if I do some penance, if I come to church enough, if I do my devotion, I'll get a good day. If I give my tithes and offering, God will make it rain. I do this, you do that, and Jesus is kind of like a genie in the bottle. If I rub you the right way, you give me what I want, and that's religion. Religion is reasonable, but he has no time for that game. He has no time 
for reasonable religion where he gets to make up for the life he lived or earn points with God or change anything. He needs something unreasonable. He needs a grace that will take him just like he is. He needs a grace that will wash his blood for him. He needs a grace that will cover his nakedness for him when his hands are tied. He needs somebody whose hands have been nailed. He needs a voice that will shout, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. You know what I see in this picture? See, two thieves, two guilty men watching an innocent man die, and two responses because you know what? The cross is confrontational. And I don't mean that in a mean way. I mean it like a fork in the road. Like when you get to the cross, it confronts you with a decision which way that you will go. You can't just... You can't just bypass the cross without making a decision. Crosses are confrontational. This guy made his choice, and this guy made his choice. Jesus was so emphatic in his life on earth about painting a picture that would illustrate how unreasonable his grace would be that he himself told a story. When I read this story in the book of Luke, you're going to have to Remember the fact that Jesus is telling the story. It's not a real story. It's an illustration. So every detail matters because the people, the characters in the scene are meant to be us. And he is illustrating his unreasonable grace. In Luke chapter 15, if you've been around a long time, you might know the story as the story of the prodigal son. Others might have heard it preached as the prodigal God. But let's read it. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them a story. A man had two sons, right? The younger son told, this is how I imagine Jesus says stories. Um, a man had two sons, right? The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. My dad's like, oh, great, thanks. Let's talk about my death. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Whose wealth is it? Come on, whose wealth? The father's. He decided to to divide his wealth between the sons. And a few days later, the younger son packed all his stuff and he moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all of his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And the young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him but no one gave him anything. And when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, back home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I'll go home to my father and I'll say this, father, I have sinned against my, both heaven and you and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. That's his plan. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his fingers, sandals for his feet. Kill the calf. We have been fattening because we ain't vegans in here. We must sell celebrate with a feast for this son of mine listen this son of mine was what dead and now has returned to life he was lost but now is found so the party began this son given 
everything, all the things that he's never earned. This is an inheritance. It's not wages. This is, doesn't, he hasn't earned it. And the father says, you want it? Here's your inheritance. He goes and he does his own thing. He decides I'm going to find my own way, figure my own self out. I'm going to fulfill my own destiny, do things how I like it and my way. And I'm going to go off. And it says he squandered and wasted his inheritance. And you know what he did? He wasted it with the prostitutes. Don't tell anyone. He was nasty. He got crazy with that. He was going to find himself and make himself happy. Something happened. At a certain point, when it all ran out, and when none of that stuff could fill, he got hungry enough, and it says he began to long for the food at home because longing always leads to returning when you finally realize that you cannot fill that thing on your own. There was an, a longing he couldn't fill. So when he, he can't fill this longing, this is what he does. He sits down and he starts to reason. Logically, let me figure this out, okay. Let me make a plan. I'm going to go back. Now, I can't be just crazy while out and go home and be like, hey, back. Where's my room? Where's my bed? No, I mean, like, I've kind of, I've kind of crossed that bridge. I got to think of a reasonable, logical way I can get back. I mean, I'm guilty. I really did my, my father wrong. I can't expect for him to take me back as a son. So here's what I'll do. I'll come to him with a reasonable offer because I don't want to be embarrassed in front of everybody. I'm going to come with a reasonable, logical offer. And I'll tell him this. Look, I know I messed up the opportunity to be your son, but if you let me. I would love to just come back in the house and be a hired servant and work for you. And that's logical. That's reasonable. Maybe at least I won't die that way. I mean, I'll settle for a role that's smaller than the role I was created to fill, but maybe I'll at least get back into his good graces. Maybe I can find a reasonable way to come back to my father's house. <laughs> I'm no longer worthy to be called a son. The scripture says this, Jesus says this, and every detail matters because he's trying to paint a picture. Scripture says that while he was a long way off, his father saw him. And this is beautiful to me because Jesus in his illustration is wanting to make us sure that we know that no matter how far off we may feel, that the father sees us. And that before we can even lay eyes on him, the Father has seen us. He says, in this illustration, I need people to know that when they drag their tails back dirty and emptied by sin, however far they feel, I see them. Now, what's reasonable is to think, oh, no. What do you mean he sees me? I wasn't ready. I mean, I was on my way back, but I was still, I was still figuring things out, and I was still in the process of trying to get myself together. I wasn't there. If he sees me, he sees my condition. If he sees me, he sees the fear in my heart. If he sees me, he sees how jacked up I am. He sees those last text messages I'm sending, just this last one. He sees those last things I'm doing. He sees my condition. Don't tell me the Father sees me afar away because that means a reasonable response is that he's angry. When he sees me, what does he feel? Does he feel anger? Does he feel resentment? Does he feel disappointment? Does he see my mess? Is he, is he angry and he's, is he waiting to, I can't see him, he can see me. Is he there waiting to punish me? Is he waiting, I can't wait to make an example of this dude because ain't nobody ever gonna disrespect me like this again. If I get back there, is he going to shame me? Is he, is he waiting? That would be reasonable, but no. 
and says he saw them. And instead of being filled with a reasonable emotion like disappointment or, or hurt or rejection or anger, it says that what he feels, the father looks at him and feels compassion. Y'all, that is not a reasonable emotion to have. You feel compassion for him, he left you. He took all your stuff, he disrespected you. That is not reasonable, but Jesus says, no, I'm not trying to paint a reasonable picture. I'm trying to illustrate the unreasonable love of God. And it says this, it's already unreasonable that he feels compassion for him. That's crazy to me, but it says this, not only does he feel sorry, he's not standing there saying, let's see if you make it all the way here, because you know, you've been pretty good at falling lately. Let me just see how close you can get, and let's see if you can finish the deal. No, 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 what he says is once he takes a single step in his direction, as soon as the father lays eyes on him, the, the, the son is putting one pensive and scared foot in front of the other. He still rehearsing his reasonable offer. He's still biting his fingernails over what this might look like. And so he's moving slow. And is this even reasonable for me to offer him anything? And as he's trying to reason and reason his way back home, the father is up there and he's like, this boy is taking so long. At a certain point, he becomes so impatient that he does the undignified, unreasonable thing. And it says the father runs to him. He runs toward him. Hurry up, boy. He runs. He runs hard. And when he gets to him, he throws his arms around him. And I can see him spinning him around. And as he does, he is inhaling the stench of sin and the stench of shame. And he is exhaling the unreasonable grace of God. And, and as soon as he gets there, the son's like, ah, oh, this is happening sooner than I thought. What was my reasonable offer? And so he goes, dad, I'm so sorry. I, I, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And I love this because the father ignores him, does not even respond because to himself, he's laughing, thinking you're no longer worthy. You were never worthy, but you were always mine you've never been worthy and so he turns and he says come on quick quick let's throw a party because this son of mine was dead resurrection power he was dead but now he is alive see the son had forfeited the life that he had been given but this is the beauty of the resurrection that the same power that raised him is able to resurrect dead lives worn lives torn lives wasted lives and Jesus still says it's okay if you just come come let us reason if you come the moment you take one step in my direction I run to you and you don't have to fix it yourself because I am the resurrection I am the life if you just believe in me though you were dead yet shall you live. Story of two sons, two thieves, only one of each experienced the unreasonable grace of God. As we go back to the thief, and I'm going to ask for Jamar to come and play. As we go back to the thief, I was reminded of this. Anybody back in the day ever watched that movie, Dead Man Walking? Of course you didn't. You're Christian. It was probably not rated G. It's all right. Um, I'm the only one who watched Dead Man Walking. It was a story <laughs> of a guy on, a death, on death row. And the, and the title is this. It's talking about the fact that 
when a person has been found guilty and, and sentenced to die, that after they've had their last meal, after they have used up all of their opportunities to try to get a new trial or new evidence or a pardon or something like that, when all hope is gone, as they are being escorted to their execution, the guard will yell, dead man walking. Dead man walking. That means he is past the point of hope. And the thief on the cross this day is a dead man walking. He's on his way to get the death he deserves. It's over. There's no hope. His case has already passed through every court. And no one has found any reason to pardon him. There's no new evidence. There's no more witnesses to call. There's no lawyer. There's nothing. He was a dead man walking just moments from experiencing the death he deserved. Everyone with power to decide had had their final word that he was guilty and that this is the price that he would pay. He was helpless, helpless, without argument or excuse, hands tied. And then an offer came from someone who looked like they had the least offer. I mean, he seemed to be in worse condition. Our hands are tied, but yours are nailed. Came an offer because Jesus heard something. The thief said to him, Jesus... Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Why was that so powerful? Why was it so powerful? Let me tell you why it's so powerful. When he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom, this was a confession of faith that said this, I don't know what's happened to my heart, but somehow I believe that you are who you said you're going to be, that you're not like us, that you are a king and that you're going into a kingdom and that you have the power to take me there. You are leaving, but you're not really leaving. You're going. You are going somewhere. And I believe by faith that you've got the power to take me with you and dead men can't take people with him. Only living people can take people with him. The thief was ignored acknowledging his faith in the death, burial, and resurrection, nothing else, just the simple saving faith. And Jesus said, oh, today <laughs> you will be with me in paradise. See, the thief never got to see the radical miracle of the resurrection, but he saw it by faith and he believed it before he saw it. He believed the most unreasonable thing that a guy beaten beyond recognition, slaughtered like an animal, that though he was dying, he would not stay dead. But he had the power to save him. It is the holy collision, y'all, where unreasonable faith and unreasonable grace collide and dead things live. And Jesus says to me, today, dying man, you will be with me in paradise. Come, let us reason together. You know, when I, when I first looked at the word reason, I looked at the English definition. And then I went back. What is the Hebrew word that's being used in this scripture for reason? What is this? Maybe it means something different because this story is unreasonable. And I went back and I looked. Do you know what the Hebrew word reason means? It's a word used here, and it actually is one Hebrew word, which means two English words reason together, and it is legal terminology. It's legal terminology, which in essence means let's both plead our case. <laughs> let's both plead 
our case. Jesus, now hanging on the cross, is doing what he prophetically was said, said he would do. And he is saying, let's both plead our case. Because here's the deal. What you need is a new trial. Because they have had their last word and their verdict. But uh, Jesus says, let's have a new trial. Let's plead our case. In these final moments you have left, uh, if you presented your, your case before their court again, they'd find you guilty. But you're going to come to my court. And in this court, I'm going to be judge, I'm going to be jury, I'm going to be witness, I'm going to be prosecution, I am going to be defense. We are going to have a new trial right here because that is your only option. I'm going to be your lawyer and I'm going to present your case to the Father. And when he sees your guilt, I'm going to call to the stand myself and I'll submit as evidence my own body and exhibits A through Z will be my blood. And once he sees that blood, he won't see anything else. Sir, I I have come to offer you something unreasonable. Let's reason together because I have come to offer you pardon. I came to preach to some you today some, some of Jesus' last words. Today you'll be with me in paradise because you need to know that with his last words, he was telling us that no matter how final your verdict may seem, he always gets the last word. That whatever condition your life is in, whatever impossibility you're facing, it is not over as long as Jesus is still speaking because Jesus gets the last word. You know why? Because he is the last word. He was the word made flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the last word, which means the power of the resurrection is when your hands are tied. As long as you believe, no one else gets the last word in your situation. Nothing is over if Jesus is still speaking. And I didn't come to tell you this today just based off the scripture, which I believe to be. I came, I, I came to tell you this because I know this personally, that Jesus gets the last word. I came to tell you when I was 13 days old, I lay dying in a hospital. My own doctors would not enter my room for fear of contracting something. It was so final. They told my parents, you are torturing yourself. Go home. Your daughter will not make it through the night. Go home. Plan her her funeral and I come to tell you today that Jesus got the last word and I did live through the night I did live through the night and then the doctor said to my parents if she does live through this you will regret she lives because her quality of life will so, be so bad she will either not be able to walk or not be able to talk she will not have any quality of life and that is our final word but how many you know and see that Jesus got the last word I can tell you story after story after story that Jesus got the last word I'm telling you about how when I was 21 and they diagnosed me with lupus and I battled lupus and I can tell you that even though that was a real situation that for years now I have gone back to doctors that have said you're whatever the doctors told you before we can't diagnose you with it anymore you you need to stop coming to us every year because there is no sign of any disease in your body because Jesus got the last word or I can tell you about when I was 30 and they, they found something they thought might be cancer and they had to operate and they said, and then the operation itself could permanently damage your vocal cords. And I could tell you that when they got out of that operating room, there was no cancer and there was no damage to my vocal cords because Jesus got the last word. And I can tell you more because when I was 35 and grieving the loss of a pregnancy early, my husband and I went to doctors to fertility specialists 
And they said to us, after they'd done all their invasive testing and all their procedures, the doctor came and he said to us, I'm sorry, but there is nothing that I can do. There is no fertility drugs that can help you. The only thing you could have done is to meet each other sooner. There's nothing I can do. And my husband stood up in his office and said, but God can. And can I tell you that the next week we conceived naturally. I gave birth to a healthy baby girl. And just because God wasn't playing, four months ago, I gave birth to another child, my son. Because why? There was a final report, but Jesus got the last word. The power of the resurrection is that the same way he got the last word with a thief on the cross. And the same way he didn't stay dead, Jesus still gets the last word, y'all, which means this, that when your heart says your dreams are over, your heart doesn't get the last word. And when your own spouse looks you in your face and says this marriage is over, I'm gone, your spouse doesn't get the last word. And when your children say to you, I'll never serve your God a day in my life, your children don't get the last word. And when the doctors tell you it is over for you or your loved one, I'm sorry, but doctors don't get the last word. And when a banker says to you, you will never recover from this financial crisis, that banker don't get the last word. And when experts say to you, you will never bear children, I come to tell you, that expert doesn't get the last word. And when shame says you will never be victorious, over sin shame doesn't get the last word and even when they bury your loved one in the ground even death doesn't get the last word because he who dies in Christ shall live again Jesus gets the last word I am the resurrection and the life if you believe on me though you were dead yet shall you live folks Jesus gets the last word and so I came on this Resurrection Sunday for two groups of people. I've been sent here. The Holy Spirit reminded me last night around midnight that when we first lost the pregnancy, we went just for an ultrasound so that they could confirm that everything had passed. And what you wanted them to see is that the womb was now empty and that they didn't have to do any more procedures. And when I went to that doctor and he said, it's okay, the ultrasound, came, the ultrasound came back, the womb is empty. Something happened. I heard the womb is empty and those four words have never felt so heavy or overwhelming in my life. What do you mean it was empty? Like, there was a baby in me. Like, you mean life left my body? You mean something died in me? What do you mean the womb is empty and the weight of those words smashed me? something powerful happened because almost simultaneously like an echo I heard the doctor say the womb is empty and it hit me so hard but then I heard the echo of God say the tomb is empty the tomb is empty the tomb is empty and he was speaking hope into my situation that yes the final verdict is your womb is empty and someone will tell you it can never be filled but the tomb is empty which means as long as God is still speaking this is not the final word and so I came today for some people who are facing and handling some seemingly dead things, final things, impossible things, some final verdicts, final decisions, final words. And I came to remind you that if you're living through a Saturday season, don't be fooled by Saturday because Saturday you hear the grieving in the morning and Saturday people are wailing, but 
But after the morning comes morning and Sunday is on the way. If you're facing a, a Saturday season, as long as Jesus is sp still speaking, he gets the last word in your diagnosis, in your marriage, in your family, in your relationships, in your finances, in every single thing you're facing. I came to remind you today, the power of the resurrection is that it ain't over, that Sunday's on the way because Jesus gets the last word. And I came for another group of people some people who find themselves more like the thief on the cross or the prodigal son. And I really came here for you. God sent me for you because you're trying to do the reasonable thing, the religious thing, which is you go to church on Easter. And you've tried religion, but there was a longing that you have not been able to fill. And like the prodigal son, money can't fill it. And women can't fill it. And independence can't fill it. And everything you try will never be able to fill it. But there was a longing in you like that prodigal. But you have felt like you don't have a reasonable offer. And reasonable religion has failed you because it hasn't filled anything. And I come to tell you, it never will. But Jesus has come to say, I have an unreasonable offer to you that like that son, you don't have to make it to me. You don't have to get yourself prepared for me. You don't have to come up with a reasonable offer for me because the moment that you set your foot on the path searching for me is the moment that I take off running and I come and I find you. And today God has found you and that burning in your heart is because God has found you and those tears that you're fighting back are because God has found you and the trembling in your hands is because God has found you right where you are and he has come to you and what you feel is the arms of grace, not judgment. What you feel is him spinning you around and saying, let's make this ride. Come home, come home. And you say, but, but like the thief, I'm messy. I'm guilty. I, uh, I can't come to him this way. And Jesus says, there's a reason your hands are tied. Because you couldn't wash blood with water anyways. Your sin has to be washed with my blood. And so here I am saying, come. You just come. Let us reason together. But your sins are scarlet, though you're far away. Today, there is resurrection power in this room. Dead lives are being called forth. Dead marriages are being called forth. Dead dreams and giftings are being called forth in the mighty name of Jesus. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. If you would like more information on our church, please go to www.embassycity.com. We would love to hear from you. Our prayer is that you have been inspired and transformed. Have a wonderful day and come back again.